0: Good morning. If you would, take your Bible and turn to John chapter 4. Studied a couple weeks ago the reality that throughout the Gospels we are given a commission by the Lord to take the Gospel into all the earth, and we saw how... uh, each one of these Gospels have a different emphasis on the Great Commission. Uh, and, and Matthew, the emphasis is on Christ's authority. In Mark, the emphasis is on the final judgment that is coming. In Luke, he emphasizes the reality that Jesus is the yes and the amen of the Old Testament, that the Word of God speaks to the Word made flesh. And in John, we see the reality that we are now commissioned. We've been walking through John for some months now, and we see that those, uh, those different emphases married with the reality that Jesus is revealed here as the one who was before the beginning of beginnings and that everything exists in Him for His own glory, that He would display His creative power and also His redemptive power. And so the entirety of a creation and all that exists is a theater to display His redemptive works. In that reality, with our commission, we see that every circumstance in our life exists to the end of our being able to, to declare the glories of God to a broken and lost generation that the Lord would be faithful to save some. And we also dealt with last week the narrowing effect of the word cosmos that the when John uses the word world it has different connotations. I shouldn't just read that word into the text. Uh, and when we hear that He is the Savior of the world in a universalist tone, but there is a narrowing effect to the way that, that John uses that word. One, the, the word does mean the entire universe, uh, and we talked about the reality that uh, the word that we translate for world is also a derivative of the, world, the word that we use in the English of cosmetics, and that all of the universe is God's ornamentation, It is what displays His majesty and His redemptive glory. But the narrowing effect then moves in on the earth in particular because it is the central point of the human story. And then the word can be used to describe all of mankind. And then it's also used for those who are in the darkness, delineating them from those who are in Christ. We talked about how throughout the redemptive narrative last week that God first chose in the garden after sin to allow the sacrifice of one lamb per person. And then moving on from there in the narrative, we find that He institutes the Passover, allowing for one sacrifice, one lamb per family. He moves on from there to institute the Day of Atonement allowing for one sacrifice for the entire nation but here we come to John chapter 4 and we find that the Samaritans those who had been thought little of are the ones who declare that Jesus is the savior of the world one lamb for the entire world he is the final substitute and The desire for God is that everyone who hears the Gospel, the command is that they would turn in repentance and faith and believe upon His name for salvation. We've seen Jesus modeling how to witness. We've seen Him commissioning and calling us to do the same and what that looks like faithfully in the text. But today, we turn to a transitional passage that really has caused a lot of confusion. And I hope to unpack it for us slightly today. With that in mind, if you would stand to do honor to the reading of God's Word, and we will read starting in verse 43. Samaritans here have just declared that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. They're making the same declaration that John has made, that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now here for this transitional Uh, Phrase, paragraph. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. This is God's word to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into your presence thankful for your word, thankful that. We are able to gather here, thankful that we're able to sing Your praises, thankful that You have given us uh, imperatives in Your Word, that we can see what the life of a true Christian really looks like, and we can live in accordance with Your Word. Father, we know that the ability to live in a way that would bring glory to You does not come from something intrinsic in us, but it comes only by Your mercies. And so we ask today that You would inscribe the truths of this passage that's transitional and that we've often just glossed over upon all of our hearts that we would be reminded of the motivations of your heart and that we would share in them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So today we come to this transitional passage that has caused much confusion. And we see that it, it speaks of... Christ moving from one location to the next, continuing his, his ministry. Some come to passages like what we're going to deal with today, and they'll say, well, see, there, there is a contradiction here. Uh, we cannot rightly understand the Bible. There are difficult passages in the Word of God. There are passages that make you go, now, wait a minute, what's going on here? Uh, There are passages that have confounded uh, Erudite scholars all throughout church history, but the reality is there is this doctrine, this reality to the Bible, the perspicuity of the Bible, that is, it is clear in its assertion. It's plain in its meaning. It is not veiled in its thrust. There is a clear understanding that what the Bible is communicating is that God is our Creator, Man is a great sinner, Jesus is the only Redeemer, and He is coming again. Repent and believe on that message. That is not unclear in the Bible. But again, there are, and we can concede this, passages that may appear to be contradictory or appear to have some difficulty in their interpretation if we know the full breadth of the Bible well. This passage that we're looking at today gives us a transition from where Jesus is in Samaria to Galilee and the reason for that transition. There's just one hiccup. And the hiccup is this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke use the same expression, uh, but it's pivoted, it's reversed, of Galilee uh, as the reason why he... in Galilee is the reason why he must go elsewhere. So John is saying... Uh, that Jesus is saying, using this phrase, that a um, a prophet is not welcome in his own hometown and I'm going to Galilee. The other Gospels use in the setting of Galilee to move away from. And so this has been one of those passages uh, that uh, modern knotheads have liked to drag up and say, see, there's not continuity here at all. Mark and chapter excuse me Matthew in chapter 13 but Jesus said to them a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and in his own household Mark 6 a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household Luke chapter 4 truly I say to you no prophet is acceptable in his hometown the oddity is that here in John, Jesus is saying this is the reason that he's going to go to Galilee. Matthew, Mark, and Luke say this is the reason that he's leaving Galilee. And so we are left with a question here. Now, strike, tr- strike two is this. In John, he says that he's going to Galilee because uh, he will have no honor there. But then in verse 45, we've already read, so when He came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed Him. They had seen everything that He had done at the Passover, and so they do welcome Him. But it's juxtaposed with this assertion that He is not welcomed by His own hometown. So what are we to do? What are we to do this morning as a church? Maybe we should cede the doctrine of inerrancy pack up our things, leave 2,000 years of church history, and just go home. It's what a lot of people have already done. But I think that would be too rash. I think that's the wrong move. Now, to arrive at the right interpretation, it's going to require, beloved, thinking on our part. We're going to have to reason through this. Now, there are, here are some explanations that have been given by different commentators And these are not foolish people. People who have thought, well, I think they've swung and missed. One, uh, the argument is that Jesus went to Galilee to prove that what He had just said, that he's a prophet is not welcome in His own hometown, uh, is is true. And that's why He makes the assertion and then moves to Galilee. The only problem is, is that in this one passage, we see that that can't be the right interpretation because, well, the Galileans actually welcome Him. Secondly, Some say that Jesus wanted to slip away after His great success uh, and He just wanted to rest for a period of time. But the problem with that is if you look back at verse 3, we find He left Judea and and departed again to Galilee. There was already this plan to move in the direction of Galilee prior to the success, and so that doesn't really resonate with the truth either. Third, some say... Uh, Jesus' own country was Judea and not Galilee, and He was returning because the Jews in Jerusalem were not responding. But as already stated, the other Gospels apply the statement in reverse. So none of these seem to hold water. And so what do we do when John says of Christ, after two days He departed for Galilee? For Jesus Himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in His own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, saying, Excuse me, welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they had, they too had gone to the feast. My argument with you this morning, and I think it's the right argument, and I'm not the only one that's made it, is that the right interpretation comes in the plain reading of the text. And I would just encourage you that this passage is a great lesson in hermeneutics. Often you'll find these really fancy ways of dissecting the text to come to a conclusion when the truth of the matter lies in the plain reading of what is being said here. And now I think part of what we have to see is that John is the one quoting Jesus and he's quoting him as having said that a prophet is not welcome in his own hometown. And now He's going back to, to Galilee, His own hometown or home country, region. So what do we, what do we make of this? Well, a plain reading will reveal this reality. That Jesus went back to Galilee because the Galileans were the ones who had rejected Him by this point and they were in need of the message. And so the rejection is the very reason that He goes. Doesn't that make sense? Isn't it also a clear then uh, indication of the motivation of our Savior? When we find in John that that Jesus was the light of the world and He came into the world and that darkness has not overcome Him, but that He came to His own people and His own people rejected Him, I think that it's important for us to remember that Jesus knew the rejection that He would suffer before He left the throne of glory and took on human flesh. Jesus is one who is motivated here by the needs of the Galileans. If Jesus is going to Galilee because of the gospel need, what then can we learn from this? How can we apply this to our own lives? And again, I I want to be clear. I do believe the reason that this is being quoted is Jesus has said it as He's left Galilee, but here in this particular passage, John is using it, and and the way that John is poetic, is flipping it to show Jesus' resolve in His motivation to go back and to witness to the reality of His identity. And what we find here, and how we apply this, is that Jesus was resolved first, and we should apply this to our own lives, Jesus was resolved to do the will of the Father regardless of the consequences. Look again at verse 34 that we dealt with several weeks ago. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus says, that thing that satisfies me, the thing for which I live, the sustenance of my life, is not that I would just feed on material things, but that I would do the will of God in my own generation. Jesus was a man who lived without regard to the the, the proximate, the instantaneous success or failure of what he was called to. Christ obeyed regardless of the consequences. Christ moved in the direction of these people who needed to hear the gospel precisely because they needed the gospel and because God had commissioned him to move in their direction. We see this by his rejection uh, and, and yet his persistence in the gospel of Luke. You'll remember in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is taken into the synagogue on the Sabbath early in His ministry. And when He goes in, He is given a scroll to read from. It was common for men to read publicly the Word of God during this time. And so Jesus, led under uh, the, the Jewish system, comes to the synagogue, and in Luke chapter 4, we find these words. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah... Was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. It's just important to know in the peripheral that they're oppressed by their own rebellion and sin against God. Goes on to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Isaiah had made a proclamation, a declaration of who the Messiah would be. Jesus walks into the religious gathering, opens the scroll, reads the text, and says, I am that One. It's been fulfilled. I am here proclaiming to you liberty and to set you free in light of who I am. And at first, we kind of garner in Luke chapter 4 that they're wondering, that they're taken aback by this. But then very quickly, in the closing of that paragraph, we find these words. When they heard these things all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. When John says that Jesus came to His own, but His own did not receive Him here in Luke, we have a clear illustration of that reality. He declares openly, publicly, clearly that He is the one who is going to come and redeem His people. And yet, they don't rejoice. They don't welcome Him. Rather, they are filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him, in, uh, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Passing through their midst, he went away. So Jesus narrowly misses being thrown off of a cliff by these angry religious Jews because he has just revealed in plain language who he is. Now, Brian, I don't know about you, but if I was called to preach in a place and they narrowly threw me off a cliff, I don't know that I would put that back on the map of places that I'm going to return. But God doesn't call us to easy places. God doesn't call us to proclaim a message that we might be patted on the back. God calls us to be faithful and it's exactly what He's called His Son to here. Friends, doing the will of God in your own generation will often come with rejection and ridicule and at times for certain individuals putting their life in jeopardy. The Galileans had almost killed Him, but the Samaritans have received Him. And what did He do? The Samaritans were ecstatic with the declaration, and they understood that this was the Savior of the world. If Jesus was just some religious charlatan that was coming to set up a system, and He really wasn't concerned with the evangelization of the entire world, He would have stayed right there in Samaria. But instead, He moves on to Galilee. He did the will of God. Beloved, we live in a day of the quick fix. I think the average length of a pastorate, if I'm not mistaken, is less than three years in our day. It's one of the reasons, in my opinion, that churches are so anemic. Now, there are some faithful men that are called to pivot and move and, and, and be uh, attending to churches that are struggling in that way, but I think there are also men that are called and just refuse to stay in hard places and teach hard truth. Uh, that's a reality all throughout uh, the church age is that pastors were were given to ministries throughout their entire lifetime uh, I think I've recommended to you before but I'll do it again without hesitation if you've never read the pastor of Kilsyth, uh, I commend it to you highly it's a great little volume a uh, pastor's son recounts his father's ministry in a little town in Scotland where he faithfully uh, administers the word and the the ordinances throughout his lifetime uh, in obscurity and I think God used that ministry faithfully then to spur on other, other works. But we live in the day of the quick fix. We live in a day with itching ears and YouTube. The reality is this morning, if you don't like what I say, it's not a problem to go home and turn on YouTube and find somebody who says something that you like. And live your life parallel to the church all the while being incorporated into the body. If something... If somebody says something on TV today that we don't like, you know what we do? We change the stinking channel. We tune out. If our efforts don't immediately produce fruit, we change the tactics. You know, it's really revealing if you look, and I haven't looked, just to be clear, but if you look at job postings for the pastorate, uh, almost a decade ago I was looking, uh, but those job postings will put out something like Able to bring conversion to our community and to our church. Able to infuse vitality into a local body. Good with people. All of those kinds of things. And I just go, wow, they are asking for their pastor to set in the place of God. And then we wonder why we turn into the 6 o'clock news and there are men who have abused the congregation. Well, of course, they're going to abuse the congregation. You've asked them to set in the place of God. Now, that's not in the notes, and that's for what it's worth. But the reality is here that we live in the day of the quick fix. And, friends, I just want to, I'm not making a defense of my ministry here. That, that's not what I'm, I'm trying to do, it may sound that way, but at the end of the day, there are many men that I know, I have a dear friend in the ministry who's struggling right now because there's not fruit in his local church, he's not seeing the, the fruit that he wants of his labor, but can I tell you this, this morning, God doesn't owe any one of us the fruit that the, we think we deserve, but I promise you this, on the authority of the Word of God, God is owed our due reverence and obedience regardless of the consequences. And I think that's what we're seeing in this pivotal verse. Jesus is going to Galilee, the place where he's been rejected. Why? Because Jesus was willing to live in light of the will of God, even if it meant the rejection of men. And we should be heartened by that. And here's the question. How does that apply in your living? Are you witnessing? God has made it plain. The Bible is not up for a Christian debate as to whether or not, and who, help me not get on a soapbox. Oh, look, there it is. Um, largely, because we live in a country that is post-industrial revolution, we have taken the gospel and applied the industrial Revolution to the gospel. What do I mean by this? I mean, Dallas, that instead of you bearing the, the, the call of God upon your life as a Christian to take the gospel into, into the community in which you live... Now we can come into the church and we can create a machine whereby once a week the gospel is delivered. Maybe we invite our friends and then we're absolved of the responsibility. It's the preacher's job, it's the professional's job to take the gospel out. But can I tell you this? The American culture may have ceded the gospel to the Industrial Revolution, but Christ is still on the throne and he has never ceded the gospel to a mechanism He's always left it to the diligence of His faithful children. So when we hear that our Savior was willing to go to Galilee, He was willing to be rejected, He was willing to be ridiculed, that begs the question, what of our own witnessing? Are we sharing the Gospel? And again, some will say, Jay, we live in a day and age where just sharing the Gospel. The fact that Jesus came to save sinners, doing that does not work. Uh-oh, there it is again. The demand that we see the results of our labor immediately. God has not... Uh, friends, I, I, I pray for a church that finds joy in the proclamation of the gospel that will yet be rejected. That we find joy in sharing the Gospel when the world will look at us as though we were fools for having done that. Because in that picture is a picture of faithfulness, of the believer living their life knowing that their Heavenly Father sees their, their way of life and their actions for His glory and they leave the consequences to Him. There's something beautiful about that. There's also something just by, we've got to get through this, but there's something disgusting, isn't there? About somebody who has a swagger in their step because I have brought people to Jesus, uh, to salvation. I have saved, I've heard this, I saved people. I always want to go up to someone that says that and rip their sleeves up and go, I don't see any scars on you. You haven't saved anyone. Yes, be faithful to herald the gospel. Leave the consequences to him. Pray diligently. Now the Bible tells us of a people who will promote the gospel in some sense but will not believe that it has power to save. I think that pervades the church today. Your job, beloved, let me just remind you succinctly, is not to save people. Your job is not to convert people because you don't have the ability. That's God's job. Only the Spirit can do that. Unless a man is born again, I say that on good authority, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can share the Gospel, but unless the Spirit intercedes and regenerates the heart, your witnessing will not produce conversion. So God is the one that must do the work of conversion in the hearts through the Spirit. Yours is to bring the gospel outwardly to as many people as you can. I think some of us get so exhausted with being rejected that we stop sharing and we forget the reality that the sharing demonstrates fidelity to the command of God upon our life and that God may choose... To allow the seed that we've sown to be harvested in a time that we won't see. God will, I promise you, on the authority of everything that the apostles and prophets have written, God will save those that He intends to save in due season. Our question, that's not a question. The question is, are we being faithful to be the instruments? Are we being faithful to live in light of the gospel? The good news that's redeemed our souls. First, Jesus was resolved to do the will of the Father. Secondly, He was motivated by the needs of the lost. Now let me be clear about this. Because as soon as I say that, some of you will hear me pivoting in a man-centered direction. This doesn't mean that He was motivated. Listen to my statement. Jesus was motivated by the needs of the lost. I did not say that He was motivated by their desires. May God be praised forever that He has never been moved by our sinful, wretched desires. In fact, we're told that often we pray desiring things in a fleshly way and God denies our prayers because we're wasting uh, our petitions to to spend them in our own passions. God rejects just this overt carnality that besets us. And there is sadly a a man-centered faith today that will confuse the two. Jesus here is rightly motivated by an actual eternal need of the Galileans. So many people in religion today, in our country, are setting about trying to figure out the sinful desires of men and then build a church around that. Uh, they're trying to set up systems where people will be pleased. But the fact is the Word of God is heralded not so that people might be pleased, but that God might receive glory and that people would repent and believe. Beloved, aren't you thankful that your Savior knows your real illness? When we go through life thinking, boy, I've got so many problems. And God, if you would just fix this thing, if you would just take care of that thing. And I am thoroughly convinced in my own life that when I get to glory, I will, have, I will have better spiritual sight to see the very things that God was doing I wasn't even aware of at certain points. And yet he was dealing with the things in me that really needed dealt with. And so it is throughout this narrative as Jesus interacts with the woman at the well with Nicodemus, he knows the real illness. He knows the real need. Mark chapter 2, you'll remember these words. The, the Pharisees ask really goofy questions. But they're also questions that we all ask. And The Pharisees just put to words the insanity of the human mind. And they asked, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And again, we've talked about this, but the, 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 the humor in this is that there's only one category of people apart from Jesus, and that is sinners. And the absurdity is that the religious people didn't think they were in that category. Jesus knows the real the real need. The real need is that we all have sought out our own schemes. We've all gone our own way. We've all sought to please God or to run from God in our own strength and to attain mercy by our own efforts. Now, Jesus, knowing that the Galileans needed to hear the good news that Christ is the one true Redeemer, the one upon whom every person must believe by faith to come to the Father, he goes to deal with them. Are you motivated by these gospel needs in the lives of others? And I'll, I, here, here's some practical questions that can help you in this. Who do you know in your life that is needy? Sarah, don't stand up and point at me. <laughs> we, we all get it. Um, who do you know that really, and, this, this on, and, and you may ask, well, on what level? And the answer to that question is, well, yes. Uh, friends, I, I think I said this a couple weeks ago, but bears repeating. We live in the face of a, a, a liberal gospel that's constantly telling us to do things uh, in a humanitarian a, uh, effort. And, and that's what the gospel is ultimately about. And we reject that as the core of the gospel. But that doesn't mean as Bible-believing people that we think little of the physical needs of other individuals. Image bearers of God have physical needs and God has given His church the ability oftentimes to meet those needs. So if you know someone who has a physical need, help them. Uh, Who do you know that is in need of the Gospel? Think about that person who is most rejected, who is most isolated, who is struggling in their health, who is angry, who is sinful, who is distorted in their thinking. We live in a day and age where if you put a certain label on a person, politically or otherwise, there somehow is in the American psyche an, under, an idea that because I disagree with them or I have differences with them, now I'm not responsible for them. But I tell you this, if you can think about the person in your life who you just go, whoo, they need grace. I mean, they need the gospel. Their mind is so distorted into humanism. They they are at every democratic national convention with their gay pride flag and their transgender, all those things, the, the alphabet people, and boy, do they need the gospel. You know the sad reality of modern Christianity is that we know they need the gospel, and what we do is we either ridicule them or we walk away. Beloved, I believe with everything in me If he has grown you to the level that you have discernment to know that someone is living in man centered ideology that will lead them to hell, he's given you that discernment for one reason that you may interject the gospel of grace. Now, can you save them? Lord, no, I would never tell you that. But can you bring good news? Can you bring the gospel to bear? Can you be faithful in the face of, and here's the deal. Whatever political party, I'm not trying to get on that train. Whatever ideology, this world is saturated with the lies of Satan. And praise be to God, he saved you. And It would be one thing if he saved you, and as we dealt with, some people say, well, the Bible's not clear. It would be one thing if he saved you, and he didn't leave with you a clear understanding of what your purpose is. Your purpose is to witness to the glory of Christ, what he's done in your life, and to proclaim the gospel to those who who are outside of the faith, praying always that the Spirit would intercede and regenerate their heart, that they would come to saving faith. My friend, if you know of someone who is rejected, isolated, foolish, angry, sinful, and you're not engaging them, that should be, that should be chilling to you. Because that's contrary to the move of Christ Interesting, often, again, when when these, tax, or when these Pharisees threw a fit about Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, they couldn't see their own need. They couldn't see the reality that, that they needed to repent and believe, that they needed to come to Christ for salvation. One, we see in light of Christ moving in the direction of Galilee where he had been rejected. Jesus is resolved to do the will of the Father regardless of failure or success. That's in the providence of God. Jesus was motivated by the fallen condition of man. And finally, Christ was motivated by Scripture. Christ knew the Old Testament have you ever been in a church where a pastor constantly nags at you to be in, in the Word, to constantly be reading the Word of God? I hope so. If you've been in that place to the point of annoyance, I, I, hope that, I, I hope you've been served well in that to the point that you've actually climbed into the Word because here's the reality. The thing that this world needs more than anything else, more than meals, more than clothing, more than good health care, more than anything physical or material is for you to know the Word of God. That when you meet with those individuals, you're able to speak from a place of wisdom the oracles of God. Christ knew the Old Testament. His identity, of course, was rooted in it. He studied it. In some sense, He wrote it. And We find in Matthew chapter 4 a really clear picture that Jesus was... My, this, this is one, one thing about modern liberal religion that I just go, good gravy. Well, we have we have just publicly pronounced our stupidity. When, when, when liberal moderns will say, well, the Bible is arcane and I don't need to live in light of it. The second member of the Trinity walked this dusty globe and even he lived in light of the Word of God. And you think you're better? Jesus has a, you know, moderns, uh, well, we have a better plan. I promise you, your plan's not better than the sovereign God of all the universe, who sent his only begotten Son into the world that all who believe upon him would not perish but have everlasting life. So the question is will you submit to that word and its clear teaching, or will you go your own way? Jesus lived in light of the word. In Matthew chapter 4, we find this. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. There is this clear picture that Jesus understands. He is the fulfillment of these prophecies. Isaiah chapter 9 particularly, and then he proclaims that passage. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, the Galilee and the, of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. Christ knew the Scripture and He lived in light of it. It formed His every action and His every move. And and here's the question today then, beloved. If that's true of Christ, should it not also be true in our lives? And some will say, well, I don't even know where Nephtali is. I didn't grow up there. There aren't particular prescriptive passages for my life that say, prophetically, this is what will happen. Kind of. Here's the reality. No, the the Scriptures don't bear the same prophetic witness about you that it does about the coming Messiah. But the Bible does give clear principles about how we are to order our lives, the priority of our life, and the intention of our life in Christ. The Bible gives that clearly. People, young people especially, will come to me, Jay, I'm really struggling with what the will of God is for my life. Repent and believe. (laughs) It's to be sanctified, yes. It's to grow in the knowledge of His Word and to be used as a witness for His glory according to His Word. You can't know the will of God if you don't know the Word of God. I'm going to get on a sidebar here, as I can. Some of you in this room might think this is benign, and I think we've talked about this before, but it, it's not just an irritation, it's a blasphemy in our community. There are churches in this town that have prophets who will tell people in their congregation what the will of God is for them on behalf of God they're living a religious life contrary to that of Christ. Because Christ knew the Word, He lived in light of it, and and He is the fulfillment, the yes and amen of this prophetic emphasis in the Old Testament. And to have people, friends, it should send chills down your spine when someone claims to be able to set in a seat of authority over the lives of people that belong to Jesus. I'm not, I am not. I don't ever want you to think of someone who may be in a system like this that immediately the button should be to think, well, they're not saved if they're in that system. The reality is I think in many ways Christ redeems people. They go into these broken systems... And these pukish people who are self-deluded in their own minds, lord over them, telling them how they are to live their life, the only problem is it's always a swing and a miss. It's other than what God has already spoken. And it is a clear abrogation of the sufficiency of Scripture. When a man assumes the office of prophet in our day, they are saying that the prophets of old are not enough. And in the Old Testament sense, and I'm not a theonomist, so you don't have to worry about this, but if I had my way, we would just carry out the Old Testament system. That fine, if you want to be a prophet, that's okay. But if you prophesy something and it doesn't come true, meet us outside, we're going to stone you to death. That would clear up a whole lot of nonsense in the American religious system. I think I was clear. And hopefully kind. And I I do want us to be a church that grieves for those people that sat in that seat. Pray that God would either, either bring them to a place of repentance, that they would leave that foolishness, or that He would remove their voices from discouraging and distracting from the true call of God to be witnesses to the glory of Christ. There are principles by which we can live The problem with so much modern ministry, again, is that it's arrogant. They look at the sinful desires of men. They build a ministry around it. They forget the the truth uh, altogether. Christ has, has, though, given us principles to live by. Salvation, we know, is not by ethics and morality, but our salvation does produce a faithful life that is ethical and moral. If we are in Christ, we are not opposed to ethics. We're not opposed to morality. We just don't think that we're saved by them. Can I tell you this under the authority of the Word of God, and I believe it with all of my fiber? If you want to be joyful, if you want to be happy, if you want to be content in your life, there is only one way that that will come As a believer in a sinful world, and that is to know the Word of God, to listen to the Word of God. When you read this, people say, Well, God, I want God to speak to me today. Okay, open your Bible, start reading it Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. He's got a lot to say. You won't get him to shut up. Read, allow what he's saying to ring in your ears. And then start to live your life by the power of the Spirit under the Word of God. And I promise you in time, that fellowship, that joy of knowing the Word of God. I, I think all the time when I think about this, about my sweet great-grandmother, who in my, in my young adult life was the most profound, had the most profound impact on me. And she wasn't a woman who chased me down the driveway with her faith beating me over the head. You know what she did? She simply read her Bible. She had a bookmark that was in her Bible. That Bible sits in my library today. And the the bookmark moved. And as I was acting like a fool in my teenage years, that moving bookmark spoke to something. Here is a woman who is content, who has joy. Where does that come from? And I reasoned in my mind, there's one thing that is markedly different in her home than anywhere else, and that is a Bible that constantly is moving. She's listening, setting under the words of God, and growing thereby. I think that's what we learned in 1 John, isn't it? 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Friends, if you want to have a joyful life, that joy only comes by communion, fellowship, intimacy with the living, holy, triune God of the universe. It doesn't come through religion. It doesn't come. Some of you are exhausted in your walk with the Lord because your walk with the Lord is marked by you trying to do everything in your own strength that God may be pleased with you. That won't work. Martin Luther knew that that wouldn't work. Martin Luther is the archetype of religious effort in 1510 you'll remember the reformation happens in 1517 1510 he climbs the scala sancta which are the holy stairs by fable and i if you were if i were a betting man to know whether or not the roman catholic church is telling the truth about this i would bet in the nint category no uh, but their assertion in 1510 was that these stairs are the same stairs that Jesus had walked on the Via Della Rosa on his way to, uh, to the cross. And they had been packed up and moved to Rome and repositioned. And God then will forgive you as, you as you walk up and down these steps and as you pray the rosary and the Our Fathers. That is how God is pleased with man. Now, can I tell you how stupid that is? In light of what we have read in John's gospel thus far and what we know of the reality that the Son of God left the glories of heaven to live and positively obey on our behalf that whoever calls upon his name will not be uh, damned but will be saved and then we think but hold on we need to add something to it. Now that's the besetting problem of humanity but here's the absolute idiocy okay well what is that thing we're going to do all right Leroy what we're going to do is we're going to go get some stairs we're going to fool people into believing they're the ones Jesus walked on and then if they walk up and down these stairs and do some things then they'll add to his work that's ludicrous but there are people still doing that to this very day as as Luther was moving up those stairs and he would he would stop at every stair and he would kiss it and say in our father He moved to the next one he moved to the next one he moved to the next one and he got to the very top of the stairs and you know what he did he looked back down the stairs and this was his thought and I think that it was brought by the spirit of God to set him free he looked down the stairs and he thought who even knows if any of this is true who even knows if this is actually going to work? Well, God spoke to Luther in His own generation, but He didn't speak by a bunch of stairs. He spoke how He's always spoken, through His Word. In the midst of his spiritual struggles, Luther had become obsessed with Romans chapter 1, verse 7. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the Righteous shall live by faith. Luther had understood the righteousness of God to mean his active righteousness, his avenging justice by which he punishes sin. On those terms, he admitted that he hated the righteousness of God. But whilst sitting in the tower at the church castle at Wittenberg, Luther meditated on this text and wrestled with its meaning, and he wrote this. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, that means he was a good religious dude, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love yes I hated the righteousness of God that punishes sinners and secretly if not blasphemously certainly certainly murmured greatly I was angry with God and said as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through originally sin through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged a fierce and tro- with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat upon Paul at, the, at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Boy, there's a lesson in hermeneutics. I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that which, by which the righteous lives by a gift from God, namely, Faith, and this is the meaning: the righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which a merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, "He who through faith is righteous shall live." Here I felt that I was altogether born again and entrusted uh, and entered paradise itself through open gates. There. A totally other face of the entire scriptures scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon, I ran through the Scriptures from memory. I also found in other terms an analogy as the work of God, that is, what God does in us the power of God with which He makes us strong, the wisdom of God with which He makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, and ultimately the glory of God. Luther was a man who had been set free. Cam mark this down. He was not set free by his religious works. He was set free only by the Word of the living God. Through the work of the Spirit, and I'll close with this. Years later, and it's arguable. One of the the debates uh, about our brother Luther is when he was saved, uh, because there's so many different kind of narratives. It, 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 some believe that it was it was much later, two or three years after he nailed the. Theses at the castle door at Wittenberg, Um, some before then. We really don't know. What we do know is that he came uh, to believe that the righteous will live by faith, that it's only by repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is a gift, not a work, that we can be made right with God. It's only through God's justice, through God's dealing with us, that we are made right with the Father. Years later, I think about a, 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 a dear saint who had been taken through the fires like Luther. And there are many areas where Luther was wrong, but when it came to his love for the Word of God, Luther is the man that I want in my foxhole. Now if it comes to what the elements of the Lord's table are, Brian you can keep him, uh, uh, but, but he was a, a man who loved the Word and years later after he had spent so much time, he had translated uh, the, the Bible into the vulgar language of the German people. And there, a, a, a dear saint came up to him and asked him to, to, to autograph a leaf of a German Bible that he himself had, had translated. And so Luther inscribed on that Bible the words of John chapter 8, verse 25. So they said to Him, Who are You? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. Jesus there is asserting His divinity, that He is the Savior of the world. He makes it plain to them. But Luther went on to write, um, below that verse, John 8, 25, they desire to know who he is and yet not regard give no regard to what he says while he desires them first to listen and then they will know who he is the rule is this listen and allow the word to make the beginning then the knowing will nicely follow if however you do not listen then you will never know anything, for it is decreed. God will not be seen, known, or comprehended except through His Word. Whatever, therefore, one undertakes for salvation apart from the Word is vain. Now, I don't think that, uh, that Luther is arguing here that we are saved by the words. He's clearly in the Word taught that we're saved by the Spirit. But if we try apart from the word, it is vain, he says. God will not respond to that. He will not have it. He will not tolerate any other way. Therefore, let his book, in which he speaks with you, be commended to you. For he did not cause it to be written for no purpose. He did not want us to let it lie there in neglect, as if he were speaking with mice under the bench or with flies on the pulpit. We are to read it, to think, and to speak about it, and to study it, certain that He Himself, not an angel or creature, is speaking with us in it. Do you get a sense of what is wrong in our generation? It's not that we lack the Bible. It's that we are the generation that has the Bible in copious amounts, and yet we have let it languish. Beloved, I love you enough to lay this at your feet. I hope this week you go set your Bible on your dining room table. And that if it sets there one day passing without being opened, that it will gnaw at you. That it needs opening. That you need to hear the... I promise you whatever problem plagues you this week, if you're in school and you have a difficult assignment, if you're going to work and you have a difficult boss if you work in the church office and you have a difficult husband, whatever the problem may be, your need is to hear the words of God. That you might be motivated by what you see there, looking out at a world lost and without those words. And that you might do the will of God in your own generation. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to You this morning so thankful for Your Word, so thankful for the testimony of our dear brothers and sisters in church history that cry out to us to live the Christian life not by mechanisms of man, but by the faithful words that You have proclaimed through Your apostles and prophets. Might we be a people stirred to be in Your Word. Might we be a people stirred to have a care and a concern for the lost in our community, those who are in need of the gospel in our own generation? Might we be fitted to speak to those who hold political views and understandings of of anthropology and sociology and the like that, that are against your Bible? Might we be arrayed against those ideologies to speak faithfully in our own day? Might we do the will of God? Might we be used of Your hand For your glory, in Christ's name we beg.